Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ the Cure. This is episode 143, and this is the Beyond Luther series. Um, how many episodes? Not really sure. Just kind of uh, including information that I uh, felt like I wanted to include. So what is this? Well, Beyond Luther, it's October, so it's Reformation Month, and I think last year we had one episode uh, courtesy of Jason from Daily Reformation Podcast. He did an episode for us uh, on Reformation Day. And I uh, didn't want to join in just for the sake of joining in. So I thought, let's talk about everything but Martin Luther. Everyone's talking about Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, and that's good. But there's a lot of moving parts in the Reformation. A lot of reformers who came before and a lot of reformers that came after Martin Luther, even at the same time as Luther doing the same things in different places. And so uh, I think that it's worth pointing out. And so today we're going to do part one, uh, the Renaissance and the Humanists, uh, which is kind of a, um, a misleading title but we'll get into that here in a second. Um, since we're talking history, you can well expect that I will mispronounce things because not only am I Texan, but I have a weird uh, way of pronouncing things anyway. So let's get right into it. Um, so often whenever we think about the word Renaissance, we think about the various famous artists, right? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Michelangelo, and all of them. Uh, but this is really kind of a shallow or narrow view of the Renaissance. And so we need to understand what the Renaissance is because it had a drastic effect on the Reformation. So much so that we don't really discuss it, but we should. Um, the Renaissance was a complex movement, had very debatable and currently debated aspects. The Renaissance and the Renaissance men and humanists had a major impact. And we'll see that here in a little bit. So the Renaissance is a term, uh, that describes various developments in the Western cultures at the end of the middle ages It is usually said to have begun. Um, uh, it's kind of hard to pinpoint a certain time because that's history, but it's said to begin at the, uh, in the second half of the 14th century in Italy. So the Renaissance had a major effect on all people in the educated class. Uh, in French, the term means rebirth. So here we see one of the particular notions of the Renaissance, that is a rebirth of love and awe for Greek and Roman culture, right? Ancient Greek and Roman cultures. So some uh, attribute the rebirth to the discovery of classical literature of the Greek and Roman world. Uh, and we see also a revival or rebirth of um, classical thought, expression, action, uh, even grammar, rhetoric, poetry, history, philosophy, etc. Um, so these humane studies place an emphasis on the communication of human beings uh, via various expressions of thoughts and values, and this became known as humanism. So humanism is kind of the 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 class that expressed Renaissance and how they applied Renaissance to humanity, the humane studies, right? Uh, so this was coined in the 19th century. And so we, but we need to remember this, that this isn't modern humanism. And we need to remember that as we go through this, it's not modern humanism that rejects the Christian worldview, but to the contrary, many humanists were pro-Christian. So whenever we talk about this individual was a humanist and this individual was a humanist in this time period, we mean individuals who sought the need to apply Renaissance principles of culture, art, uh, literary um, style, everything uh, to hu humanity, essentially, to kind of boil it down. So it was this group of cultured individuals that would actually bring about the verbiage of the Dark Ages, and they refer to the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. So if you ever want to know where that came from, it came from the humanists. So one of the staples of the humanist movement, or the ideals of the Renaissance, uh, was that it moved the Christian life to the here and now, in the present time. Uh, the Middle Ages uh, tend to look ahead at, you know, eschaton, you know, hell, heaven, those things in the end. 
But the humanists saw a need to bring all the stuff of the Christian worldview into the culture instead of letting the culture die while Christianity looked to the end of the street instead of the road they were currently on. Um, There's an analogy for you. Um, So there was a heavy fixation on Greek and Roman thought, as I mentioned already. Uh, And this included Christian humanism, where Christians would optimistically engage in various passions, such as art, music, literature, government, uh, etc. And really, it didn't sit well with the average or ordinary ideal of the monastery, uh, and you'll see this dynamic appear uh, in this time period where the monastery life and um, humanism were very uh, uh, counter to each other because monastery life was you lived um, separate, you were uh, apart from culture, and with humanism it was, no, we integrate the biblical worldview into culture. Um, so to go back to ancient sources, that's that's kind of the key idea here. Uh, Christian humanists wanted to go back to all of the sources, including the Christian sources of the ancient days. And so here we find the entrance of the Greek New Testament, the early church fathers, uh, over and against things like the Latin Vulgate and tradition. And we have to remember that the Latin Vulgate ruled in the West for a thousand years. Uh, And so this became a really big deal. It was a big deal to go back to Greek and Hebrew, as we'll see later on. Now, the ancient world became um, ideal over and against the Dark Ages. Remember the Middle Ages? And so the humanists um, are the ones who encapsulated the phrase ad fontes or back to the sources, which we most of us were recognized as a battle cry of the Reformation. We're going ad fontes, back to the scriptures, back to the early church. We're reforming. Um, so that comes from humanism, comes from the Renaissance. Uh, with the desire to go back to these ancient sources came an interest in philosophy. And much of the human uh, humanist movement uh, were extremely opposed to scholasticism. Uh, even the reformers had very heavy uh, distaste for scholastic theology. Uh, and to briefly define that, scholastic theology uh, was the name of theological teachings which were predominant during the Middle Ages in the Western Church. And they were characterized by uh, seeking to reconcile faith and reason. They formed systematic theology. But most importantly, which is the big distinctive, they were heavily influenced by philosophy, specifically the writings of Aristotle. Um, so in some areas of the church, Plato was preferred, but Aristotle dominated the West. And we see this characterized in Thomas Aquinas, who was, um, the, the theological giant of the middle ages of sorts. He was a scholastic theologian. He had a lot of Aristotle in his writings. So back to the humanists, the humanists preferred Plato over Aristotle. Uh, and so they found the, the developments of scholastic theology to be more philosophical than scripture. So there was this dynamic of, well, we prefer Plato over Aristotle, but also that you have too much philosophy uh, in your in your theology. So especially whenever it came to um, uh, in relation to Augustine, uh, Aristotle versus Augustine became a big thing where Augustine was pit against Aristotle and Augustine was championed by many of the humanists. And we'll find that the reformed branch, um, well, even the Lutherans heavily were influenced by Augustine. Uh, so here we can summarize Christian humanists um, in that they looked down upon the Dark Ages They believed the spiritual golden age of the day was the apostles and their early church, and they had a bias towards Plato over against um, Aristotle, which fundamentally challenged the most developed forms of scholastic theology. Um, We have to understand that scholastic theology was a big driving point for things like the treasury of merits, um, indulgences, things of that nature. So to challenge scholastic theology was to challenge a really bedrock um, ideal that had formed in the Middle Ages. Um, so to name all the humanists would be absolutely uh, impossible. Uh, so we'll, bri- we'll briefly talk about some of the key players. So uh, the first one worth mentioning is Lorenzo Valla, 
who lived between 1406 and 1457. He was a humanist who was a priest. He favored Augustine, as we talked about. He engaged very heavily with the Greek New Testament, along um, with holding various critiques of Catholic tradition. He had two works that were notable, and one of them, he made it a point to expose the donation of Constantine, which is a document, as a forgery. Now, this document arose in the 8th century, and it claimed to be from Constantine to the 4th century pope. And in this document, Constantine supposedly acknowledged that the pope was superior to the emperor and granted the papacy the right to govern the city of Rome and the territory of Italy. Uh, so, for 700 years, popes used this document to claim authority of the, uh, the papacy, and Valla and his work went directly after this document, claiming it was a forgery in 1440. Uh, in this work, he claimed that the, uh, the papacy needed to renounce its political position and become a spiritual institution. He also had a work that would be dramatically important. We can't, we can't stress this enough. His annotation on the New Testament. Uh, so this wouldn't be published until 1505. It was published by Erasmus. We'll get to him in a little bit. Uh, but it was a comparison of the Greek New Testament and the Latin Vulgate, uh, in which he noted the Vulgate's errors and because of the Vulgate's status as, quote-unquote, the Bible for the thousand years, this became a major point of contention. Uh, and it put him on the hot seat of Rome. His works ended up being condemned, as you would expect, and we'll move on from there. Sebastian Brandt, of 1458 to 1521, was from Germany. He was a proponent of the empire over the papacy. So he saw the Roman Empire as being superior to the papacy, and he saw the need for the emperor to step in and reform the church. Of course, with things like the donation to Constantine, that wouldn't be uh, even possible. So he made his own works, uh, called one of them called The Ship of Fools. He had a bunch of, uh, he had variety in this document. Some of them were um, about eschatology. But in this, he condemned the lives of priests, and he referred to them as the devil's excrement. Uh, there's a vivid picture for you. And he, like many before him, also critiqued the, the selling of indulgences and relics for profits. Indulgences were challenged long prior to Luther, and this is a rolling train, right? So moving on to our next man. Um, goodness gracious, these names sometimes. Uh, Faber Stapulensis is what he was known as um, from 1460 to 1533. I can't pronounce his French name. He was French. He was a zealous reformer who absolutely despised scholastic theology. Um, he focused on the grammatical historical method of interpretation. That's the interpretation, the hermeneutics that we learn today. You focus on grammar, you focus on the historical context. Um, and his views, you have to remember that scholastic theology, I didn't notice earlier, scholastic theology had a major uh, emphasis on allegorical readings of the text, for sure. Um, anyway, his views uh, in terms of the grammatical historical method of interpretation were shared by many of the later reformers. That that was a big staple for all the reformers. In his work on Paul's letters, he denied the place of any human worthiness or merit in salvation, uh, contra the systems in place, uh, which was heavily meritorious in various facets. He also challenged the Mass, or specifically the doctrine on transubstantiation. I always say that incorrectly, apologize. Uh, it's the doctrine where the, the bread and wine literally turn into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. He challenged that, uh, which was also a consistent theme of pre-Luther uh, reformers. Uh, a man in England named John Cullet from 1467 to 1519 taught at Oxford, uh, university in which he taught from the Pauline corpus, and he also attacked scholastic theology, uh, especially Thomas Aquinas. Uh, this made him gain uh, favor with his followers, uh, who were primarily the followers of John Wycliffe, uh, the Lollards. We talked about them before, I believe. Um, they were uh, sort of reformers before their times. Uh, 
As you would expect, he upset those who would be considered conservative at the time, especially with his critiques of images and relics. Um, a very important man who came from Spain uh, during 1436 and 1517 was Cardinal Jimenez. Uh, he gathered a team together to put um, a text of the Old and New Testament together. It was published in 1522, though it was finished in 1517. Uh, and this is called the Complutensian Polyglot. Uh, it was a text that contained the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the Greek text of the New Testament, alongside the Latin Vulgate. Um, Jimenez, unlike the other humanists, he actually enjoyed the scholastics. So he was an interesting fellow. Uh, he particularly enjoyed Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and he ended up having a, a unique flavor of theology, so to speak. So the big man on campus who heavily influenced the Reformation and even you today uh, is Erasmus, who lived between 1466 and 1536. Um, if he's not familiar, you likely have used his work. Well, sort of. He's sort of known as the most influential humanist around. He was from the Netherlands. He produced 226 works and was noted as the master, the schoolmaster of Europe. Um, he had spent time in a monastery, but he actually ended up uh, detesting monastery life uh, with a great zeal, actually. He spent a good amount of time critiquing monastery life. Erasmus spent time focusing on the Greek language in particular, uh, the New Testament and the early church fathers. He rejected scholastic theology, like most humanists, and he had a special attention uh, critiquing external religion, including images, relics, indulgences. He, he focused on the internal rather than external, which uh, this goes into an interest, interesting discussion on his particular view of um, uh, the Mass and even on baptism. He seems to imply that rebaptism re is... Um, completely acceptable if you have an internal reality that wasn't there before. Uh, and then on the doctrine of mass, well, you know, he there's a debate over that, but he seems to kind of almost deny transubstantiation a couple times. Anyway, most of his critiques focused on the papacy and monks and clergy. And the way he did it was not aggression, but he had a big uh, a big bent towards satire and humor. In fact, he had a, a piece where Pope Julius was um, excluded or excommunicated from heaven by Peter himself. And uh, you can read that online if you want. Uh, as can be discerned, Erasmus had a great desire for moral reform and cultural reform since his views were heavily focused upon the internal rather than the external, which was highly predominant. You have to remember that the Middle Ages had a lot of superstitions, a lot of relics, things of that nature. Um, Erasmus's most famous legacy is his work on the New Testament. It was Erasmus who published Vala's annotations, as I noted earlier. Um, and he published his own edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516, uh, which uh, would be later known as the Textus Receptus. Uh, if you don't know, that's the basis of um, the various Greek texts that led to the King James Version of the Bible. Um, in fact, there was a recent debate on the Textus Receptus um, with Jeffrey Riddle and James White. So many at the time said that Erasmus led the egg and Luther hatched it. And it's very true. We have to understand that the Greek New Testament being in the hands published, uh, circulated around, and we'll talk about this in the next episode as well, how the Greek New Testament, having the Bible and an accessible language in the original languages to be studied was absolutely uh, phenomenal. It was the Achilles heel, especially in terms of the Vulgate, whenever we talk about translation differences between what the Latin could be translated as or understood as versus what the Greek would be understood as. Um, worth mentioning, because everyone wants to know about that, is the relationship between Erasmus and Luther. Uh, Post-Diet of Worms, which was 1524, 
uh, through the 25th. Um, so while Erasmus desired a peaceful reform inside the church, he, he initially supported Luther and he encouraged him initially. Uh, but then Luther became more, uh, more violent, more severe language, and that repelled Erasmus. So essentially Luther repelled Erasmus and in 1524, Erasmus published a book called The Freedom of the Will. He was encouraged by his peers to publish this book, which was actually a critique of Luther's Augustinian theology. Um, Erasmus argued that uh, conversion and salvation were a shared work of human free will and divine grace, and grace was essential, but free will must cooperate with it and man could reject it at any point. So Luther's famous reply, which most of us know, uh, was the work The Bondage of the Will, where essentially... Uh, he restated Augustinian theology uh, on, on sin, grace, and predestination. Now, Erasmus, like most humanists, um, actually remained Catholic. And that's what we see is that a lot of the humanists prior to the Reformation uh, either died before they had to make a decision. And then there were some that were off put by what happened uh, post-Diet of Worms, so to speak. And so Erasmus was one of these individuals. He was shunned by Rome for his work in uh, helping Luther in some sense of hatching the Reformation. Uh, but he was also shunned by Protestants for not joining the Reformation. So he had an interesting dynamic for sure. So interestingly, there was a string of Renaissance popes uh, who funded and promoted the artistic movement despite its tendency to attack scholastic theology. Of course, um, they were critiqued as well for living immoral lives. So there's this weird dynamic between popes and... Um, and or humanism in that sense. So aside from the humanist movement contributing um, a lot to the Reformation, you have to understand that the historical grammatical methodology, looking at the original text of the New Testament and the original text of the Old Testament, looking at the early church fathers, um, the idea of studying them um, apart from tradition, apart from scholastic theology, that is Aristotle influence, um, the rejection of heavy philosophical inference, and at the same time, the, the vocalization against relics, against indulgences, um, the things that many, the things that Luther uh, brought up notably in his 95 Theses, um, these things um, were kind of boiled in the waters of humanism. Humanism desired for the culture to be educated, the culture to be cultural, to be to be culturally rich rather, and so this pushed for getting. Uh, works into the hands of everyone, um, you know, kind of bringing who were the peasants um, out of the dark ages and into the light, so to speak. And so, in some sense, the the, the humanists and the ideals of the humanists that challenged the scholastic system uh, upon the backs of other reformers. The you know you have Jan Hus and you have um, Wycliffe. You have other individuals who came prior. Uh, who also challenged these things. And so they, they built on these foundations, they pulled from original sources, and this swept over everything like a wave. Now, like I mentioned previously, a lot of humanists ended up remaining Catholic. Um, and we'll talk about the Council of Trent down the road. I want to make sure that I include this in this little mini-series, uh, just for the sake of sharing the information. Um, so yeah, uh, because of interpretation, challenging scholastic theology and biblical languages, there was numerous individuals prior to 1517 who were working for reformation and revival of the church. In fact, they wanted to revive the church. They wanted monastery life to be corrected. They wanted uh, the papacy to be corrected. Some of them wanted the papacy to become spiritual more than political because you have to realize that there was a lot of issues uh, within the medieval period 
or the Middle Ages where, you know, popes, kings, and land, uh, it was primarily about power. Um, so there was a recognition of this. There was a recognition of uh, immoral lives. There was a recognition of um, the papacy's claims of infallibility being false. There was um, issues with indulgences. Um, there was issues with purgatory. There were issues with you name it. Uh, basically anything that the reformers brought up had been brought up prior to 1517. But what is interesting too, I think, is that uh, the idea of mass or taking communion was a major, major point of contention where in the Middle Ages, uh, only those who were clergy, you know, the priests, could partake in communion while the laity, the the common folk, just kind of had a watch. It became a spectator sport. And a lot of them saw this as airiness, right? They saw this as a problem um, because if, if it, first off, if it did convey a type of grace, then the lady needs it uh, just as much as the clergy, if not more, right? If the argument is that the clergy is a higher class of people and the laity um, are kind of these peasants who, who are a little bit dirty, right? Uh, then they need uh, this grace. And so that was one argument from that particular angle. Uh, what we see later on, too, with the same idea with indulgences, you know, Martin Luther critiqued this, uh, especially, I think he put it the most uh, concisely, was essentially, if if we have to buy um, indulgences and the Pope can freely grant them, but he just makes us purchase them, then why not just give those blessings without a type of payment? So we start seeing this this idea, this pushback against uh, relics as well, where the, these ideas of um, all these external um, superstitious type ideals. And we'll get into more of that here in a little bit. So prior to 1517, there was a lot of movement, a lot of moving parts, a lot of con- uh, contributions. There were the backs of those who came prior. There was humanism, which challenged scholasticism and brought about the Greek text, the Hebrew text, uh, which um, became a boom in giving the Bible in the modern tongue to to various individuals. Martin Luther with his German translation. You had um, Tyndale with his uh, first edition of the, the English New Testament, which was absolutely phenomenal for the Scottish Reformation and for England, whenever it was smuggled over to England. And then, of course, you have uh, the Geneva Bible, which was an English translation over in Geneva, and it still impacts. It was the first study Bible of its type. And then, of course, you have the Cloverdale Bible, which was finishing the work of um, the work of Tyndale and that it included the Old Testament. And then you have the, the Matthews Bible. Basically, you see this boom and, and Bible translation, giving the Bible in the people's hands and this emphasis on we need to go back to this instead of just listening to that. And so that was a major Reformation principle. What does the scripture say? Um, with this all said, we have to remember that it's history. Not everything is pretty. Not everything is straightforward. There's a lot of politics that come into play. And so as we go into the next few episodes, we'll be skipping a lot of politics. We'll be skipping a lot of the nuanced. Uh, I'll mention I'll have to pick and choose because really to to make a whole episode is to write a book. <laughs> Um, and there's plenty of resources. You can go to the crisisthecure.org uh, book recommendations. I have several uh, church history recommendation um, uh, books that are fantastic. Nate Needham's are absolutely phenomenal. If you want to go into a more thorough um, thorough treatment, Philip Schaff's works are fantastic. But you're talking eight volumes. So I would opt for Gonzalez for Nate Needham. But regardless, there's a lot of moving parts. And one thing I want to talk about, and I'll probably repeat this almost every episode, is that we have to remember that these were men, they were fallible, they had flaws, and especially whenever we get down to um, how they dealt with radical reformers and how Luther acted in certain circumstances, we can talk about that all day, but we need to remember that um, as we look at all the moving parts and pieces, 
uh, God used fallible men providentially to reform the church. And the Reformed were calling upon ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the scriptures, back to the early church. And so that the notion um, that we have to remember that not only do we remember this period in time, but we remember that which came before. And that includes that which came before 1517. Now, the next episodes, uh, this was a very brief touching on a much larger ideal. As we said, it, it began in the 15th century or the second half of the 14th century. Uh, and it was a big impact. Uh, but we'll... we'll talk mostly about what happened um, either at the time of Luther and after Luther while avoiding Luther for the most part. Uh, so I kind of want to give you the things that aren't necessarily talked about around this period in time because there's a lot going on and how far we go. I'm really not sure. I'm kind of on a history kick right now. So we may just go um, up to the Puritans. We may not. I don't know. I'll have you know that this was a last minute decision. So whenever you saw that post yesterday, uh, well, let me let me rephrase that. Whenever you saw that post on October 6th saying coming soon, uh, I literally prepped this episode that day. So this is a two-day prep, and um, we'll see how far it goes. Um, we're probably going to stay bi-weekly unless I get enough episodes to cover October. But basically for the whole month of October, we'll be talking about Reformation history. So that's it. I hope you get encouraged to dive more into this. There's a lot here that I couldn't cover. Um, so get your, your church history hats on and go buy some church history books and let's dive in and let's appreciate what the church has been doing since the beginning, uh, till now, uh, because there's a lot of church history to look at. So, uh, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. <laughs>